I don't want to. I don't want to follow all the protocols you expect in a Sunday morning sermon. Although in vineyards, that's not a problem anyway. But, <laughs> uh, I just want to talk to you. I want to talk to you out of my heart, not because my heart is a source of important information, but because I believe what I want to say to you this morning is from the heart of the Lord. Nothing can hurt you but sin. Nothing can hurt you but sin. If you think that's an obvious statement that doesn't even need to be said, you got to understand what Mary and I deal with. Among other things, we deal with a lot of leaders. A lot of leaders who have a great vision, they have a good ministry, they've got a calling on them, they've got uh, effective ministry, and they've got secret sin in their life. Now, when I talk about secret sin, who doesn't have issues that we're sorry for, that we're dealing with, that we're wrestling with? Everybody has that, and nobody wants to get up and tell about it, therefore it's a secret. Okay? So when I talk about secret sin, in some ways, I'm obviously maybe talking about everybody in the room. And if, if you have a certain spirit of legalism about you, you can make everybody in the room feel really bad, and then we can have an altar call, and everybody, you know, everybody who feels like a slugworm now, come, <laughs> come forward. We can have a big altar call. It's kind of like youth, youth ministry I used to do. You know, scare the kids to death. How many of you, you know, tell the story about the kid who didn't come to the altar and the bus hit him as he left church? And then how many of you don't want to be hit by a bus? Raise your hand. Everybody raises their hand. Everybody comes to the altar because they don't want to be hit by a bus. And then we go home and tell people what a great youth ministry we had. Have all, any of you been to that camp? I, I, the last thing in the world I want to try to say to you today is anything that makes you feel like that. Okay? At the same time, I'm experiencing in the body of Christ across the board, in every group, whether it's evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic, emerging church, whatever label you want to stick on it, an incredible, arrogant indifference towards sin. Some of you in this room right now possibly are just shacking up. You're living in sexual sin. You're not married. You just shack up. You think grace covers it. God understands. Yeah, God does understand. That's the whole point. He understands fully. Only he can separate between those of us who recognize our sin and are sorry for it. Like the man in Luke chapter 18, Jesus talks about where, where he, 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 he's beating his breast and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the implication in that verse is he's still sinning. He's struggling. But he's not sinning with a, what the Old Testament called a high hand. He's sinning out of lack of understanding to know how to stop. 
And all he knows how to do is come before the Lord and ask for mercy. And then there's the other guy who comes arrogantly before God, proud of his accomplishments, and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And Jesus says, the guy who was beating his breast and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, the guy who couldn't even lift up his head, he went home justified. But the same word Paul uses throughout Romans to mean just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Now, based on that story, it seems pretty, pretty clear that all God ever requires of us is humility. True humility. Humility meaning a willingness to tell the truth, a willingness to be honest and, and forthright and to do whatever it takes to put things right that's within your power to do it. And therefore, God's grace and mercy must be moving on many, many people throughout the world in ways that we don't comprehend. And I'm grateful, grateful for that. What I'm terrified by is the different kinds of arrogance that has now crept into the church in the name of grace. It's, you know, God, I'm under God's grace. When you read the book of Jeremiah, the whole book, if you understand the background, the historical background of Jeremiah, we sometimes we get a picture in our mind of, of the people of Jeremiah's day just kind of being, uh, you know, just openly perverse and wicked and just, just, you know, horrible openly all the time. But that's not really accurate. They went to church. They did all the normal, historical, traditional Jewish things. They just mixed a little adultery and Baal worship and child sacrifice in with it. Because they wanted to be relevant. And Nebuchadnezzar wiped them off the face of the earth. And scattered them to the four winds. And the whole time they were claiming to be God's people. Are you hearing me? Now, some of you are probably, maybe possibly thinking, you know, for the first five minutes you gave me hope. <laughs> but how many parents, how many parents we got here? Parents. Look, let me talk to you as a parent. Is there anything your child can do to, to take your love away? No. Is there anything your child can do to break your heart? Yes. And when, when your heart is being broken by willful, con continual sin in the life of your child, what will you do to try to get across to them not how you feel as if it's about them behaving so you are not disturbed, but what their behavior is going to eventually produce. We've got this strange idea that, that oh, Jesus died for my sins and, and we've become high-handed. 
I've had young people say to me, not young is a relative term, by the way. I've had people say to me, you know, uh, Jesus will forgive me. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, me and my girlfriend are sleeping together, but Jesus will forgive me. He understands. Yeah, you know what he understands? He understands that you are an arrogant fool who thinks you can presume on the shed blood of Jesus to pay for your ticket to fornicate. That's what Jesus understands about you. Are you hearing me? I heard a guy on the radio a few days ago. I don't know who he was because I didn't wait around to hear the ending. But I listened to about 10 minutes of him explaining grace to me and whoever else was listening, which I hope was only about 10 people maybe somewhere. And this is what he was saying. He was saying, all those preachers out there you hear warning the church of judgment to come, all those preachers out there who are telling you, you better repent. He said, there's no such thing as repentance once you're born again. That's what he was preaching. There's no such thing as repentance once you're born again. To be born again is to be fully justified. There is nothing to fear. There is nothing to be concerned about. Your, your sins are under the blood. He said, now this sounds really spiritual. He said, it's an insult to the shed blood of Jesus, to ever think you need to put things right with God once you have come to Christ. That sounds real spiritual. All you got to do for that doctrine to fit is tear out Revelation chapter 1 through 2 and 3 and throw it in the garbage can. I don't know if any of you have ever noticed, but Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is to the church. And almost every statement in it is a call to repentance. See, I don't have a text this morning. I don't have a text. I don't have a neat little proof text. What I'm talking to you about is the whole message, the whole book. From Genesis to Revelation, here's the message. I love you just like you are. And I love you so much, I will not let you stay like you are. So you got one guy who's saying, God, I don't want to be like I am. I'm sorry for the way I am. Please forgive me for the way I am. I know that guy. I was that guy for 30, 36 years. At 37, I became perfect and didn't have to pray. <laughs> now, the reason I say I was that guy for 36 years is because for 36 years, I was trying, well, for 20 years of those 36, I was trying with all I knew how to find my way out of the wounds of my childhood that deformed my adulthood. And I loved God with all I knew how, but boy, I made a lot of mistakes and made a lot of messes, and sometimes I'd get hurt and angry, sometimes by the church. And I would just say, hell with it, and just go out and party and take care of my own flesh then I'd come back and say I, I, I can't live without you I can't I can't live without you okay and at no time in my failing struggling falling life 
did Jesus ever leave me or reject me or rebuke me in such a way as to make me feel hopeless? Not ever. Not ever. So when I'm telling you that judgment is coming on the church, it's not because I'm some kind of self-righteous, wild-eyed, legalistic fundamentalist who's going around looking for people who do things I don't particularly agree with, so I want God to kill them for me. (laughs) You ever met one of those? I'm, I'm... between between Mary and I, we've we've raised a lot of children. Sometimes we have to number them, you know. They they're just at our house. Besides our children, our children's friends, and they've just kind of all been part of our world. And we've raised a lot of children. So I tell stories about my kids. We have so many you'd never know which one I was talking about. So it's safe for me to tell some of the stories about them. But but. What I've had to deal with with my children as they got older and had to confront sin. One of my boys got in, involved with with drugs, and I don't mean he just got on drugs. I mean a friend of mine in the police department came by and he said, "Listen, Jimmy's involved in something that could kill him. I'm not talking about just him overdosing. I'm talking about he's messing with people that could cut his throat for a nickel." And I know you don't know what he's doing but I'm, I'm here to tell you we're watching him we're not watching him just so we can arrest him we're watching him so we can save his life because I'm your friend now you think that didn't keep me awake you think you think I wanted to just come and grab him and slam him against the wall and yell and scream at him because he was embarrassing the ministry or some such crap as that I'm looking at the potential loss of my son All other categories don't matter. You you see what I'm saying? And when I I did confront him, I I did slam him against the wall, (laughs) so to speak. And I was angry. And I I did want to scare the devil out of him. But my anger was because of my love. And if there was no anger, the love is counterfeit. Can you see that? If there's no anger, the love is counterfeit. So if God loves us like we love to say God loves us, you should expect anger. When you shack up with your girlfriend and think God's grace covers it, you should expect anger. Or you do whatever else you want to put in the, in the list. I use that one because it's so common. I mean, I've worked with kids for years, ever since I was one. And while I was one, I was pretty messed up, but I was doing the best I knew. I wasn't a hypocrite, but I sure was confused and hurt and trying to find my way and had no fathers. There were no fathers in the church guiding me. And the men I went to for help, and I don't mean this to sound bitter, but the men I went to for help either were hyper-legalistic, who scared me away, or hyper-affirming, 
who blessed my gifts because they knew my gifts would be advantageous to the building of their ministry. And they didn't care about my character as long as I had gifts. You know, as long as you can sing and dance, doesn't matter if you're a whore. And that's what I see in a lot of churches. As long as you, as long as you can do something that builds the thing, whatever it is, and I'm not saying that that's happening here, thank God. If it was, I, I doubt we'd be here. But Ralph and Kathy don't have that heart. Thank God. But as long as you can sing and dance and do your thing, you, you have a ministry. And, um, you know, if you've got little problems in your life like lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, fornication, pornography, and whatever else, that's just an aside. Well, that was going on when I was a kid. But now it's on a big scale. Now that it's on a big scale. It doesn't matter if you're shacking up or having adultery. Let's just fix the adultery and then you marry your adulterous partner and get your ministry going again. Well, but Clay, there were miracles. Yeah, there were. There were miracles. I'm talking about Lakeland. There were miracles. There was also adultery. There was also counterfeit manifestations. And gullible Christians sitting there taking it in. And when it's okay to be gullible, I was down there. I went because I was hoping for reality. And I went down there with a heart open. And I saw reality. I saw real things happen. But the moment I heard there was adultery and immorality, I expected it to be dealt with. How's it being dealt with, folks? Well, he married his adulterous partner. Well, he married her. That's okay now. He married her. It's okay now. So we've got to get his ministry back up as fast as possible because gifts are more important than character in this move of God we have today. As long as you have miracles dripping off your fingers, it doesn't really matter if you know how to keep a covenant with your wife or not. I'm really frightened by that. I'm really frightened by that. Because that is the setup for mass deception and demonic counterfeits. Stealing the glory of God. It's strange fire on the altar of Yahweh. And if you don't know it or not, strange fire will get you killed. And I don't just mean physical death. It may cost us our soul. So I'm talking to you like a father this morning who's frightened for his children. We're going to come to the table here in just a little bit. And in order to prepare ourselves for that, I want to ask you to do two things. The first one is, regardless of how frustrated you might be at my message this morning, could you ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's anything in your heart? Y'all, there's, there's lots of seats over here if you want to.
<coughs> squeeze in. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you if there's anything in your heart where you have been high-handed. Anything in your heart where you've just said, God, I trust your mercy, which means I'm just going to live my own way and trust you to fix it later. We've all got versions of that. There's always small versions of that because we're human and we're broken. I think you all know well enough to know the difference between the little versions of that that we all struggle with and an arrogant mindset that lives that way. It's the difference between what the Bible calls transgression and iniquity. Transgression is crossing a line you know you're not supposed to cross. Iniquity is living there. The Bible makes ample promise for the cleansing of transgressions. He also even promises, this is the heart of God. Think of, this is the heart of God. He also says, I will wash away your iniquity and your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. He even makes provision for the cleansing of iniquity. But if you receive the cleansing of that iniquity and then think that that cleansing was meant to give you a license to live in the iniquity, you have destroyed any hope of the future because after you've shed after you've trampled the blood of Christ under your feet by high-handedness, there remains no longer any sacrifice for sin. There's nowhere else to go. If the sacrifice for your sin is behind you and you've disdained it, where do you go from there? Peter talks about, I mean, this is not new. The early church dealt with this. And Peter says, he says, you've forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. You've forgotten and gone back like a pig back to his slop. The other thing I'm frightened about is the ever-increasing dishonor that I see rising in the church toward the atonement bought by the blood of Jesus. Sometimes Mary and I sit and try to find on Sunday evening somebody preaching the cross. It's a very difficult thing to find. We can find a lot of smiley faces talking about your best life now. His daddy was one of my mentors. I love him. I don't hear one word of the gospel. No wonder 50,000 people show up. There's nothing that calls them to repentance or obedience to a living God. There's nothing that calls them to the blood of Christ. But if you have no sin, you don't need atonement. I mean, ultimately, you under, that's, that's where this is headed. We have no sin. We don't need an atonement. The shed blood of Jesus was not for the deliverance from sin to save us from the wrath to come because there is no wrath coming. Because God's happy now. God's happy. Jesus died to save the world. Somehow that has become to mean Jesus paid all the price for all the sin of all the world and there's no longer anything else we need to do because Jesus did it all. That's all true 
if it's understood in the right context. But if it's treated as it is being treated, the way I've already described, it is insanity and will bring destruction beyond imagination. Because you see, folks, it's always more dangerous for a people who forget than it is for a people who never knew. It's always more dangerous for a people who forget than it is for a people who never knew. When my life was a mixture of struggling to know God on one side and falling back into old sexual sins from my boyhood on the other, because my entire childhood was one of continuous molestation, sexual sin, pornography, and demonic oppression. I came to the Lord as a teenager and was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the war started for my soul, the battle for my mind. I told some of the men during the conference, you know, right in the middle of, of college, I just had a breakdown. I couldn't take it anymore. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll leave school and go into full-time ministry to escape this pain, which is about as smart as a kid who goes to the Marines because he's tired of being told what to do. <laughs> and my mind started being ripped apart. And I would cry myself to sleep. I was in Sacramento, California one night. The poor pastor, bless his heart, I, he just didn't know any better. He put me in a hotel right across the street from an X-rated theater. I was 20 years old. Got to the meeting that night. Already knowing that when the meeting was over, I was probably going to end up at that theater. Already knowing that. Okay? Not necessarily planning it. It was not like I said, you know what? God's so stupid. He thinks I'm so godly. He's going to bless me and use me while I speak. But when I get to that hotel, he, you know, I'm going to go have a, have a little party. And uh, God is too stupid to know that. It, that was not my attitude. My attitude was, I want to do what's right, and I don't know how. I'm going to try to serve God the best I can for two hours preaching in this church. And then when it's over, I'm probably going to go to that hotel. And knowing me, based on my record, I'll, I'll screw up again. But I don't know what to do anymore, so I'm not going to make God any stupid promises because I'm tired of promising God things I can't keep. Can any of you relate to what I'm talking about? I'm not trying to make excuses for my sin. I'm trying to show you the difference between transgression and brokenness, which God has mercy on, and high-handed arrogance, which God will destroy. That night I preached, and when I got through preaching, a young lady walked in the back. I saw her come in late, and I thought she was about eight months pregnant. And then she came forward for prayer, and I remember thinking, man... Maybe she just wants prayer for the baby, you know. I, I can do that. Lord bless the baby. I could prophesy over and say, it's going to be a boy or a girl. <laughs> I 
But she came forward and she said, Would you please pray for me? I have a tumor. This is a tumor in her stomach. Now, you think I had a lot of faith? You think I had a lot of anointing? Her husband came in. I I said, you know, ask him to lay his hands on her stomach and pray. I laid my hands on his hand. And the minute I touched his hand, her stomach went down like a balloon. I went to my hotel room that night and I didn't go to the X-rated theater. You know why? Because God had done a miracle and I was so convinced that now I was real. No. I got to the hotel room and I cried till four in the morning. And I said, God, will you please stop using me? Please stop using me because I can't do both. I can't live in both worlds. Just cut me loose and let me go into the dark. I heard the Lord say to me, that's the reason I'll never let you go. Because you hate the dark. And I know who you really are. And I'll finish what I started in you. It took a long time. It took a lot of years. But he who begun a good work in me finished it and is continuing to finish what's not finished. And I'm as capable of sin as I've ever been and I'm as tempted sometimes in certain areas as I was when I was 20. But sin doesn't have power over me in that area anymore. Now I'm just tempted with anger at the church. Hollywood church makes me want to vomit. Everybody wants to be a star. TV. As long as you're on TV, no matter how many adulterous affairs you're having. I I know too much. I mean, I've been in that world for so many years. I know so many people. That can sound so arrogant, and I'm not trying to impress you with what I know. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to wake us up. Time is so so short. And judgment begins at the house of God. That character on the radio who's saying there's no judgment and there's no repentance once you come to Christ. I don't know what Bible he reads. Judgment begins at the house of God. It begins at the house of God. Peter is quoting there from Ezekiel chapter 16, 17, 18, where God says, God says to the angel, he says, go and walk among the people and mark those who weep and wail over the wickedness of the city. They are mine. Kill the rest, beginning at the temple. 
Judgment begins at the house of God. Start at the temple and kill everything that has its fist in my face saying, we don't care what you say. Our inheritance is from Abraham. The loss of the preaching of the cross means the loss of the preaching of conviction of sin, which then means the loss of the preaching of wrath to come. If you stop preaching one of those, you stop preaching the other two. Don't misunderstand. Y'all, I sat through sermons on hell that just made me want to never go to church again. Like old Tetzel, you know, going through Europe, burning his hand. It's just like, how many of you don't want to be hit by a bus, you know? Hellfire, damnation, you know, I've seen people scared into repentance that lasted just so long as they were scared. And when the fear was over, their repentance was over. I know that. I understand that. But if you begin to understand, have you ever have you ever been to a mental institution? I, I don't mean as an inmate necessarily. <laughs> but have you ever been to a mental ward and seen the bedlam, the hollow eyes staring at you and howling and screaming and gritting their teeth and coming at you with fingernails? That's hell. That's the vestibule, the outer corridor of hell. You ever talk to an addict? You ever been an addict? I have. I've been an addict. You know what addiction is? It's an ever-increasing appetite that gives an ever-decreasing kick so that it takes more and more appetite that gives less and less kick. And the final end is you're nothing but appetite with no kick. Just one giant craving where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's hell. Hell is not some torture chamber put together by a vindictive, angry God from medieval mythology who wants to watch you boil in oil or cook forever. That's not what the Bible's talking about. When you deal with addicts like I've dealt with addicts, and you've been an addict like I've been an addict, when you've been in that grip of something that's eating your soul, and you don't know how to stop, but you keep giving into it and giving into it till it takes you over, you already know what hell is. And you would have moments when if you could just set yourself on fire, it would be a relief. We probably get, I don't know, how many calls a week from pastors, teachers, leaders, youth pastors, all of them struggling with porn. All of them struggling with porn. You know, the, the Eskimos have a way of killing a wolf. They'll take a, they'll take a knife and they'll dip it in blood and they'll freeze it. 
Then they'll dip it in blood and they'll freeze it. And they'll dip it in blood and they'll freeze it until it's got a nice big layer of blood on that knife. And they'll stick the knife out there and the wolf smells that blood from afar off. And he comes up and he starts licking, licking, licking. And the more he licks, the more frenzy he gets into, never realizing that he's cutting himself to death. That's porn. Or any other addiction. So when God says, look, I love you, don't sin. I'll help you, and all I need from you is humility and honesty. That's all I need from you. There's nothing in your life that he cannot heal and cleanse and deliver you from. I'm not talking theory. I've been there. But what he cannot do is heal you while you keep drinking the poison. People come for marriage counseling. Mary and I, we don't have time to do marriage counseling like we used to. But people will come, you know, and, and they both love the Lord and they both trying to work out their marriage. And we could make progress because we had tissue to work with. But now they come and he's in some kind of sin and she's in some kind of sin and she's not willing to repent and he's not willing to repent and they want us to put these two cadavers together and make a life out of it. We just say, go away. Can't help you. What do you mean you can't help us? Well, God, what, what kind of help am I going to give you? You want to put Band-Aid on your cancer? You kiss your bullet holes and make them better? Go home and get so miserable that you will cry out to God and say, whatever it takes, teach me how to love. And then you won't need to come see me. But marriages are falling apart because people are unbelievably selfish and selfish like we've never seen before in the history of this country. Selfish beyond imagination. I know there's exceptions. I know sometimes you, you're doing the best you can and you've got a spouse that just will not give you grace for anything. I know that. I know that. But I, that's not the majority of the case. Just like I know there's women who have abortions because they are terrified to bring a child into the world and they are unloved and unprotected and nobody's looking out for them, much less looking out for their baby. And they kill the baby thinking they're saving the baby from suffering. But that is a small minority. Most people are killing babies for their stinking convenience so they can fornicate like dogs in heat, have more babies and kill them too. They're Baal worshipers. They're Moloch worshipers. And lots of them sit in church and sing Amazing Grace. You wonder why we're hearing storm clouds off the horizon. You're wondering why the nation stands on the precipice of all kinds of disaster. It's not just economic. That's the least of it. It's the blood that Jesus shed that saves us from the wrath to come. Once that blood is applied to a humble, honest heart, 
you are safe. Because nothing can hurt you except sin. Willful, high-handed, arrogant sin. The ongoing struggling sins of all of our lives are covered by the blood. 1 John 1 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. He keeps us cleansed under that blood. But it's when we arrogantly step out from under that and say, we don't even need it anymore. We're more mature than that. We've matured beyond slaughterhouse religion. We don't need to sing those stupid old hymns about the blood. People won't understand that. you got to give them a latte and make them feel comfortable and so they'll feel good and come back. Feel good and come back for what? Oh, our church is so exciting. It's like going to a mall. Well, go to the blasted mall. I love you. It matters to me more than I can tell you what's going to happen to you and your children. I look in the face of my babies. They're not babies anymore. And I think about yours. When I go to a mall, I look around and I think, where are they headed? What are they going to become? What's going to become of them? If the fire fell today, where would they be? Who will they be? That mother sitting over there in the restaurant with her little boy, does she ever talk to him about anything that matters? Does that father that's pushing the stroller with wandering eyes looking at all the women he would wish to be with, but he's stuck with this woman and baby now. Does it ever occur to him that very, very quickly, very, very quickly, his life's going to pass away? So is, when he gets to be 50, 55, will he go out and try to regain his lost sexual prowess at the very time of life when he should be preparing for death and eternity and judgment? Buy him a Ferrari? wear his shirt down to his belly button and see if he can pick up chicks. <laughs> I see those creatures all over this city. There's nothing more terrifying to me than an old fool. <laughs> Young fools, there's mercy for. Some of you should take comfort in that. God has a lot of mercy for youthful ignorance. God doesn't expect old heads on young shoulders. But a man who's lived 40, 50, 60 years and he's still skulking around looking for a hot touch is a fool beyond any fool on the planet. So what are we going to do this morning? Here's, here's what I believe the invitation is. Because of our brother's word about intercession and prayer, 
I wasn't sure what direction I was supposed to go this morning. And when he got up and began to talk about the call of God to intercede and pray, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people whom God has called out to stand in the gap for such a time as this. I love the way you worded what you said about the, the coming new age. I like the way he didn't talk about the rapture. He didn't talk about flying away. He talked about standing as kings and priests, doing our job, and bringing back the king. I have a king. Who cannot be elected and cannot be voted out and who can't be bought. And who is coming soon. And in the meantime, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be? Who are we supposed to be? We are supposed to be kings under that king. What do kings do? They rule. But we're also priests. What do priests do? They intercede. We rule by intercession. If a nation is going to hell in a handbasket, God holds the church responsible, not the pagans. Pagans can't help being pagan. They're, they're pagan. They can't help being pagan. Why do we get mad at them for being pagan? I think the reason we get mad at them is because we still like to do some of the stuff they get to do and we feel like we can't do it anymore and they get to and we don't. <laughs> which just shows where our hearts still are mixed. Y'all, I know so much about this because I live with me. <laughs> Mary and I were driving through Little Rock, Arkansas a few years ago, and we stopped at a restaurant, and they had a bar in there, and in the bar they had screens up. And uh, there were little kids in there. You know, an MTV is puking its garbage out of those screens. I mean, you know, it's porn with pants on. Yeah, some of you kids know all about that because you watch it more than you read your Bible. Porn with pants on. I got to go pay the bill. I'm going to pay the bill. And this rage comes up in me, and I'm just picturing in my head tearing the screen off the wall and slamming it through all the mirrors and just the place just all for the glory of God. I get out in the car. At that time, we, we still lived in Texas and it was four hours home and I'd drive. Mary said, what's the matter with you? I don't want to talk about it. I'm driving like an idiot. But for the glory of God, so it's okay. <laughs> Mary gets home. We get home. She says, I don't understand you. I said, I just can't. Talk. I, am, I am filled with contempt, and, and the burden of the Lord is on me. I said some kind of religious bull crap like that. And I got before the Lord because I was miserable for like 48 hours, and I just got more and more miserable and I, I'm so, Lord, I'm so burdened over the sins of the nation. And he said, no, you're not. 
let me tell you what you are. He said, you're three things. You're burdened for the sins of the nation. That's what you are consciously referring to. And that's true. There's a little bit of that there. He said, let me tell you the other two things you are. You still have desires for part of the world you say you left behind. And when you have MTV or some other thing dancing it in front of you, it angers you that you are reminded that you still feel that pull. But instead of being honest about it, you turn it into a counterfeit religious zeal for purity. And he said, the third thing's going on in you is, you're just basically, basically angry at them because they still get to party and you don't. <laughs> and he said, you know, two-thirds of your anger is evil. But if you wrap it all up in holiness and spirituality, you can pass yourself off as a great prophet fighting for truth. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? Two-thirds of your anger is evil. But one-third is just enough religion to make the two-thirds hide and look good. Yes, sir. I hate to name names, but everybody knows this story. I mean, everybody knows the Jimmy Swaggart debacle. Everybody knows that. You know, I grew up not far from Jimmy Swaggart. I could have been Jimmy Swaggart. Those, some of you don't even know who I'm talking about, thankfully. But you know, Jimmy Swaggart, was a, he was a high-profile preacher in the 1980s, bigger than Billy Graham in some circles. And uh, he was always coming on TV with his face red and shaking his fist. And boy, when he started talking about adulterers, he would just get so angry and his face would get so red and he would just rip and tear and just preach them right into hell because he was going to prostitutes privately. When I was a kid, I was sitting in church, this same guy. Uh, not Jimmy Swaggart, but uh, I mean, a guy was preaching and he was, uh, he was just coming down on adulterers, beating those adulterers in the head. And this old man sitting next to me leaned over. I was just a kid. He just leaned over to me and he said, you know what? That man's in adultery. Turned out to be true. See, a man who's not in adultery but is burdened over adultery will talk about adultery with tears. Not with rage. Remember when David was in adultery? He hid it for a year. Nathan the prophet came in and said, let me tell you a story, David. There's a man who had a sheep. It's all the sheep he had, just one sheep. He lived next to a rich man who had many, many sheep. The rich man had guests coming, so instead of killing one of his own flock, he killed the man's sheep. What should happen to the man? You know what David said? Kill the man who killed the sheep. What does the law of Moses say the man should have done? Replace the sheep seven times. David was casting judgment on the man because he was the man. And he knew he should die for it. 
self-righteous, arrogant judgmentalism in the church has made the pagan world hate us because they know we're flaming hypocrites and we don't speak with humility or love. And you know what? The only reason we want people to straighten up is not because we don't want them to perish. It's because we don't want them to mess up our living room. And instead of humbly repenting to God and crying out to God for mercy on us so we can become ministry to them, we said to the government, put up a fence and protect us from these perverts. We're going to march and we're going to picket and we're going to make the government make those people behave. We're going to become the righteous, right-wing political machine that brings America back. I'm telling you folks, don't, don't speak from the left or the right. Speak to the, to the heavens. And then if we, start, if we start manifesting the reality of Christ in the earth, maybe we'll gain the moral authority to, to rebuke them. You know what Bill Clinton said about Mother Teresa? When he met Mother Teresa when she came to America, first thing she said to him, 110 pounds, she walked up to him, put her little bony finger in his chest, and she said, stop killing babies. And Bill Clinton had the moral sensitivity to say to his staff, she has the moral right to say that to me. Which says, the right-wing church doesn't. I'm not talking to you from left or right. I don't trust the snakes on either side. I'm not interested in what they do. They're not my hope. My hope is a king. So when you come to the table here today, how do you come? Just come in humility and honesty. If you're in sin, repent. Repent means change what you're doing. If you don't know how to change what you're doing, there's lots of people in here who've had a lot of practice in changing what we're doing. And we can help you. We can't help anybody who wants to say, Jesus loves me, Jesus forgives me, I'm going to keep living any way I want to and trust God's mercy. We can't give you nothing but pity. Okay? But if you long for reality, he'll meet you.